this morning and turn them to uh, the book of Matthew chapter 26 where we had our scripture reading a while ago. And uh, while you're finding that, do you notice just the slightest hint of change as we start to get into August? And uh, it's, it's a marvelous thing really to uh, know that God is the master of change because we don't usually like change, but God knows exactly how to do it and take care of it. And if you just think about the fact that he does this every year, four times a year, and about 27 times during the day, it seems, sometimes, um, then we can uh, even see in the world around us the fact that God's wisdom is evident. And we need to take that over into our own lives, don't we, sometimes, and realize that when there's the hint of change or those things that sometimes make us a little uncomfortable, um, God is in control and God is all wise and God is all loving. Well, that was all for free. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26, and I want to reread one of the verses that we read just a moment ago, verse number 62. I think you'll find a question there. Let's see if we find it. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? So I'm interested, especially in the first part of that, where he asks Jesus this, Answerest thou nothing? So we're going to stop. We're going to have a word of prayer. And maybe you're intrigued by this. I know I am. And so we'll look into it together and and look to see what God uh, has for us today. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your loving kindness, for your care. Lord, for the fact that we worship an all-loving and an all-knowing God. Thank you, Father, that beyond just all-knowing, we thank you that you're all-wise because we understand that there is a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. We know that you have both. You know, we know that uh, you have a plenitude of both. Plenty enough to manage our lives. Plenty enough to care for this world. Plenty enough to do things right. Plenty enough to know what prayers to answer and what prayers not to answer and whether to say yes, no, or wait. There's so many different things like this, Lord, that we just uh, look to you and we want to come into your presence this morning to acknowledge all of those things, to worship you, to know that you are the king of the universe, that you are our king. And thank you that we can worship you through Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's possible for us through the work that Jesus did on the cross of Calvary for us to have a personal relationship with you, to know our sins are forgiven, to know that we're right with you, to know that we belong to you, to know that we're your child, we have a home in heaven, and uh, all the days of our pilgrimage in this world, we know that you're with us always, even to the consummation of the age. And so we thank you for all of these things that you help us and that you'll bless us. Now, Lord, we come today in part because we need help. And we need your word, and we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. So I pray that you will have something for each of us today. I pray that you will just work it out and cause it that none of the weakness of our flesh will intervene, whether that of the speaker or the listener, and that uh, the things that you want said will be said, the things that you want us to absorb and hear, we won't miss those. Help us to put aside all the busyness and distractions and burdens and problems that we can often bring And uh, just know that you will want to address our lives and help us to listen in. Bless those that are helping with the children or other classes in the building and uh, give them uh, success in their ministry too. For these things now we pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. They ask him this. We're making enough progress that we're nearly at the end of one of the Gospels. And since a lot of this is sometimes repeated in some of the others, we've knocked out a lion's share. However, uh, as we finish up Matthew, we'll be looking for other questions that people ask Jesus 
that were not recorded in Matthew that may be also worth our attention. As God gives us time to do that, um, we'll be doing exactly that. You might look at this one for today. Um, The high priests ask Jesus this question that we have recorded in verse 62. Answerest thou nothing? And you might have sort of the same reaction that I maybe initially did because Sometimes you're going through these. Usually, typically, what I've done with this is I've gone ahead ahead of time and made records of all these questions, and then um, I decide which ones I feel led to do or which ones I feel are important because not all of them are necessarily uh, important enough that we need to spend time on them here. This is kind of one of those ones I think you could look at it and almost dismiss it. You almost might say to yourself, "Well, okay, I don't know that there's anything really of of, of moment here that we need to." spend our time on, except for the fact that something happens that that sort of changes your mind when you think about that, and that's the fact that this doesn't just happen here. It happens on several occasions in the course of the various trials that Jesus had, so that all of a sudden you're starting to notice that there's a little bit of a pattern here. So that's one thing you notice. Then there's another thing that I think is quite interesting. When you begin to notice that oftentimes when Jesus did not answer, that it caused either bewilderment or perhaps in some cases uh, consternation on the part of those who were asking the questions, then you begin to stop and pause and think about this and say to yourself, hmm, maybe, maybe there really is something here. Maybe there's something that would repay um, some time, attention, and some meditation. I want you to notice over in verse number 12 of chapter 27, just across the page, perhaps you'll see what I'm talking about, where it says in this, and this is the record of a separate occasion now, um, in the various trials of Jesus, their various stages. So this is an appearance before Pilate. And it says, and when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? Now watch verse 14. And he answered him, to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. So here you have Pilate, and he takes notice of this. So maybe if others take note of this, we should take note of this and begin to ask some questions about why is it that on some occasions the Lord refused to answer, while on related occasions, because we're going to see that, he did choose to answer. In fact, In our very passage this morning, if you took note of this, that initially he refuses to answer the question that's asked, but then later when the high priest probes along a different line, Jesus does respond without taking time to look. The same thing happens with Pilate. There are times when in the course of his appearances before Pilate, he doesn't answer, but Pilate chooses to interact with him further, and then Jesus finds it important to respond So I think we're going to be able to find some things and learn some things as we look at those scriptures together. And uh, although I wouldn't say that this is the most profound message you'll ever hear, I do believe that it touches on a very practical subject. Let me put it to you this way, because I think this is what this message is all about today. Perhaps we can all find some guidance in whether to speak up or shut up. Seems like we have problems with that sometimes, don't we? Seems like we don't speak up 
when we should speak up and we don't shut up when we ought to shut up. Seems like we get it backwards. Seems like we don't know when to be quiet and blab off and say something that we don't need to say and later regret. Or else we really should say something on behalf of the Lord or on behalf of some other matter and are just constrained, afraid, intimidated, have some other reason why we don't do it. And so what I'm hoping is that when we see a little bit about Jesus' example here, I hope we'll remember this, and I hope we'll be inspired by Jesus' example, and we'll learn a few things that may help us uh, in our, be practical to us in our Christian living. First of all, I would like to talk to you about wisdom in not speaking. Do you know that Jesus demonstrates, I think, here clear wisdom to remain silent at the first. And I think for those of us who have been out in life a little bit, you don't really have to be out in life that far, but just a little bit, and you have some opportunities to observe, boy, you know, there's a real wisdom sometime in just keeping your mouth shut. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here, but to get below the surface and see exactly what's going on and how we could maybe learn at least some of the principles that, or some of the circumstances that bear on this. So let's look at it. Um, first of all, I would like to point out to you that in this first interchange, you have these men coming and uh, making these false accusations. Verse number 59, let's re- look at that verse again together. Um, where it says this, but the chief priests and elders and all the council sought, what's this say? False witnesses. So what does that tell you about the nature of the people who are doing the accusing? Right from the very beginning, it tells us they they are not people of character. They're not people uh, who are honest or true men. They're basically hit men. They're basically guns for hire. Uh, the the high priests, the chief priests and others have gone out to find for the express purpose of arriving at at a negative verdict concerning Jesus, people who would be willing to lie if necessary, misconstrue the truth. These are the types of accusations that are being leveled against Jesus, and Jesus chooses not to respond to this. Moreover, not only is the character of these people unworthy of a response— but furthermore, they couldn't even get their own story right. It's, it, it's kind of an interesting thing to observe, and, and I, I'll read this for you. I don't think it's necessary for you to turn, but if you were to go over to Mark's account of this in chapter 14 and verse 59, he has a very uh, to-the-point way of putting what I'm talking to you about right now. Here's what it says. At the end of this, um, they have these accusations. I'll read verse 58 as well. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And Mark just says this, but neither so did their witness agree together. Well, they couldn't even get their own story completely straight, and they certainly couldn't quote Jesus accurately. I ask you, let's look now at what we saw in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 62. Um, Let's back up to what they said. Verse 61, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. So I have a question for you. Did Jesus ever say that? This is not a trick question. (laughs) 
Okay, nobody wants to stick his neck out. Well, sort of. But in that I won't tell you, yes, that's exactly what he said, the devil is in the details. Let's look over in John chapter 2 and verse 19. See, because there's, a, there's quite a distinction that's going on here between the way that they said or they reported what Jesus said and what he actually said. Um, this is called spin. Do you think we see that? Oh, my. As I've said to you before, folks, there's really, and the writer Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The devil doesn't have any new tricks. He just has different wrapping paper. None of this stuff has changed. It's all just the same stuff. It's just becoming kind of virulent um, in our culture today. But look at this in John chapter 2. So this is harking back all the way really early uh, in Jesus' ministry. So there's some time, a good bit of time has gone by since this was said, but This is on the occasion, the first occasion, earlier in Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, when he cleansed the temple. And there's some back and forth, some questions about this. The Jews say to him in verse 18 of chapter 2, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And here's what Jesus says in response to that. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's not the same thing. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, it's almost as if you were going to bring the significance of that out. It would be something like, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. You you see what I'm saying? Jesus is not telling them to do it. He's saying, if they do it, here's what will happen, and he knows they are going to do it because this fakey of the temple of his body, right, That's what's going on here. Jesus nowhere said, I will destroy. Do you see the distinction that's there? There's a big distinction, really. The action that Jesus contemplates in chapter 2, verse 19 of, of John is action undertaken by others. If I put it that way, does that make sense to you? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. This is action undertaken and initiated by other people. The way the false witnesses come through with this in verse number 61 in Matthew. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. There's a big difference between that. And the reason is, you may say, well, it's all just semantics. Well, sometimes semantics are important. I mean, if you're going to quote someone, especially in a situation where two witnesses were required, someone said something that was actionable, you needed to have the agreement of two witnesses because you were trying to be certain that somebody couldn't just come along and slander someone else and then a a horrible penalty come upon that person as a result of that. You see, had Jesus said what they said he said, and had they really been able to agree and keep their story straight, there might have been something there actionable because if Jesus had threatened or said he was going to destroy the temple, that would probably be looked upon by the Jews as blasphemous. Or, maybe more importantly, it would be looked upon by Pilate. It might have been something they could have gotten some traction with, with Pilate because that could very easily have been represented as being subversive. And if it was one thing that Rome was for it was law and order and if it was one thing you didn't do it was to be subversive 
So it's possible that that might have been actionable, but they couldn't get their story straight. Such was the caliber of these people. In some ways, it didn't really matter. Because I'll tell you what, and here's the next thought. So what we've seen so far is here you have people who are of low character. They're not truthful, honest people. It's questionable whether they even deserve a response. But there's also something else that we can say that fit factors into this. It didn't really matter. But can you imagine arguing with those people? Can you imagine trying to respond to those people? Whether that would have been profitable or whether that would have just been an endless well. But it didn't really matter because the mind of the high priest was already made up and the outcome was already determined. That's what it says in verse number 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. I mean, they'd already determined why they were there and what they were going to do. And in fact, what happens, and this is what changes the whole dynamic of things, when the high priest sees he's not getting anywhere with these false witnesses. He's not getting what he wants because what he wants is a guilty verdict. He switches gears completely. He puts these guys off to the side because they're exactly as I presented them. They're a bunch of jerks. And even the high priest sees that. And so he changes gears and asks Jesus a question himself. Oh, we'll get to this. Technically, he doesn't quite ask it as much as he demands an answer in a legal context, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. But see, there again, it brings up another point when you're dealing with people as to whether or not you respond to them and you, you ask yourself, first of all, what kind of person am I dealing with? I think that does have some bearing also, if the person's mind is already made up, it has some bearing as to whether or not you would make a judgment of wisdom that it's better just not to engage this person in conversation. But I can tell you that the broad principle that comes out of this, and that is, is that the, witness, the witnesses, I think, remind us that there are some people that it's just better not to engage. You're not going to get anywhere. You ever had that experience in life? And even though sometimes it's really tempting to defend yourself or to put them in their place, it's not going to be profitable to do that. Um, I would like to show you some verses that I think help us with this. So keep your finger here, but let's, let's look at these. Proverbs chapter 9. You, you, you might be surprised about how much the Bible has to say about this may require some wisdom. This may require a an assessment of the situation you're in, but the Bible definitely makes provision for a lot of times for us to recognize that this comes into play. So Proverbs chapter 9, let's look first of all at uh, verse 7. It says, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. In other words, it's just not profitable. The outcome's not going to be positive. You're not doing yourself any good. Look at it, it says, And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth to himself a blot. And, and there are times in life when simply engaging people in conversation is unprofitable. It's not going to get anywhere and may actually have an adverse effect. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Well, if you have someone that will listen to you, but... There are some people you meet in life that they aren't going to listen to you no matter what you say. You just as well talk to the telephone pole. Meet anybody like that? 
Let's look at some other verses also in Proverbs. Let's flip over to chapter 26. I'm trying to get all these things put together because they come at it from different directions, but when you put it all together, you have kind of a picture. Proverbs uh, chapter 26, verse 4 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. But definitely times it's unprofitable to engage certain people in, in uh, back and forth. But then in the next verse, it points out there is a point of wisdom and there is a point of balance. There are times when it says, answer not a fool according. And verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. So there may be times when it's necessary to rebuke someone. But dropping down later in the chapter to verse number 16, I think is one of my favorites. He says this, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. You know what that's saying, folks? That's saying that there are some people out there that are just so full of pride, they have no clue, but their biggest problem is they don't realize they don't have a clue. In fact, if anything, they're proud and think that they know it all. But the problem with this guy is a character problem. He's a sluggard, and so you can point out to him all kinds of reasons why this needs to be taken care of or why it's not unwise or why it is unwise to, to, to put off things. You know, growing up in our house, if you did that kind of thing, you were supposed to get something done, you didn't get it done, you were called a put-offski. And... Uh, there's a lot of people out there like that. You, you can try to sit down there and talk to sometimes those people, but you know what? They're already smarter than you. They have seven reasons figured out why, why your answer's not right. And I can tell you something, folks. <laughs> Having been engaged in pastoral ministry for years and years and years, after a while, you sort of figure out that some people, you're wasting your time. You can't talk to them. You've tried before. doesn't really matter what you say. They've already got their minds made up. And I've deliberately chosen not to respond to people like that many times over the years because it's just unprofitable. You're not going to get anywhere. You end up with a big argument. It won't do anybody any good. It's better to let the Lord sometimes deal with cer certain situations when you see that sort of being the case. Um, the high priest... Uh, reminds us of another instance, and that's a situation where someone's mind is already made up. But truly sometimes, and, and all of this to say, I want to move off of this, but truly sometimes it's all of it is to say that silence is the greater wisdom, even when we are tempted to do exactly uh, the opposite. I'm sure you've heard this pointed out in one format or another before, but you know, you've heard the old saying that you have two ears and one mouth, use them proportionately. And there's another good verse that I didn't have us turn to, but if you take notes, you might want to write this one down. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 11 says, A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Okay, so life's experience, as well as many verses in Proverbs and elsewhere in the Bible, teach us that there are many occasions when 
it would be better for us simply not to respond. And we see a specific example of it with Jesus pointing out that he was dealing with people who were of low reputation. They were not, they, they were not going to respond to him because their whole job in being there was to be a false witness. So that's why I think he chose not to answer them. The mind of the high priest was already made up. But now, let's talk about our second point, because sometimes there may be a wisdom in not speaking, but sometimes there's an obligation to speak. And that's what I think you'll see now as Jesus shifts gears. So let's look at the story, because as I said to you, the dynamic of this uh, sort of changes. What happens next changes everything. The high priest sees full well he's not getting anywhere. This plan doesn't work. This is kind of blown up in his face. So... If he's going to get what he wants, if he's going to get this guilty verdict, which he could get if he could accuse Jesus of blasphemy, he's going to have to change tactics. He's going to have to do something else. He's not getting there with these, with these lowlifes that they've brought in there. Verse 63 says, but Jesus held his peace. Even the high priest says, answerest thou nothing, what it is which these witness against thee, but Jesus held his peace. Now comes the title shift. The high priest shifts gears completely. And the high priest answered and said unto him, you notice now, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Then you'll notice verse 64 says, Jesus said, what, what, what changes this? Why is it that Jesus chooses not to answer these false witnesses, but the minute the high priest does what he does here, all of a sudden it changes completely. Jesus must speak. Well, it's very simply this. When we look down at our version and we see that um, our reading there is the high priest says, I adjure thee by the living God. Maybe we don't always pick up on what that's really talking about, if you're not familiar with the word adjure or whatever. But we have to kind of back up and remember that this is a legal context. The Sanhedrin is there. They're, they're capable of delivering a verdict and a judgment. And so what this means, if you were to take this word from the original and, and actually give it uh, it's fullest sense like what and put it into the kind of language that maybe we would use today it was basically this I put you under oath I put you under oath well everything's changed now are you the son are you the Christ the son of the living God under oath are you the Christ, the Son of the living God, under oath? So I see two, two things are going on here now. One is he has a legal obligation to answer. Guess what? If Jesus hadn't answered at this point, it would have been easy enough to infer that in American parlance he was not speaking because he was taking the fifth which gets us into the next point that you not only have here a legal obligation to speak, but more importantly, there's a moral obligation to speak at this point. 
The truth has to be upheld. Yes, there were times earlier in Jesus' ministry when he was not ready to make those claims in a more public context. But here at the very end, to be called on the carpet, so to speak, before the council of the entire nation and to be put under oath, is this what you've said of yourself? Well, to remain silent would have been what we would say is a guilty silence. Jesus had to speak up. The nature of his true identity had to be upheld. He had to speak for the truth. And so the Lord goes on to say, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, which is I explained earlier in one of the other uh, messages, a different scripture. That's kind of, it sounds to me, it sounds to us a little bit like that's an equivocation. It's not. In the parlance of the day, if you said, if you use that expression, thou hast said, what you were really saying was, it is as you said. So he, there's no equivocation. It's an absolute affirmation. It is exactly as you've said. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus goes in one better and even says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He not only goes on to, not only says thou hast said, but goes on to reiterate the strength of those claims by giving him even more in his, in his assessment. Folks, I think this is exactly, let's look at a parallel account. I think that this is, uh, or a, 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 an account that's very similar. If you'd go to John 18, I think you find that the same thing is going on uh, in, in Jesus' appearance before Pilate two times. Two times this happens, and I think it explains why at first he's silent, but then he feels the compulsion to speak. John chapter 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Well, what's Jesus going to say? Pilate's asking a question, and this question has legal implications. It has uh, everything to do with whether or not Pilate is going to consider him worthy of something beyond just the squabbling of the Jews. Because Pilate was not going to brook a rival king to Caesar. The Jews had no king. So if this claim is out there, art thou the king of the Jews? Something has to be said here. There's a moral obligation. He, Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Now look what Jesus does. He goes on incredibly to give Pilate the exact information he needs to make a determination. And that is, yes, a king, but not how you're thinking. Look, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not, under, not of this world. You don't have anything to worry about me as far as being a political subversive is concerned. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? 
Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault at all in him. Why? Pilate's satisfied. Jesus is not posing any risk to me or to Caesar as a political subversive. He's not going around stirring up the Jews and saying, there's a new king, there's a new king. We're not going to see the, the kingdom rise again and, we're throw, and, and a political situation whereby we're going to throw off the Romans. Jesus said, a king, yes, but not the kind you're thinking, not the kind you're worried about right now. There's a moral obligation, see, and a legal obligation that's going on here. Turn to chapter 19 or just look across the page. Same thing happens. Different appearance before Pilate. Look at verse 8. Well, let's just back up and get the context. Verse 7, then Jesus answered, we have a law, the Jews, sorry, the Jews answered, we have a law and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Son of God. You have to remember that Pilate's wife had already gone to him and told him, I have dreams, you know, don't, don't have anything to do with this guy. Anyway, Pilate was the more afraid, and he went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. It, but when Pilate says the next verse, Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? So this is one of those times where I say Jesus' failure to speak was at sometimes puzzling to people. At other times, it was a source of consternation. Pilate's the, Pilate's the governor. He's got a right to have a prisoner answer him. He's a little exasperated by this. So he says, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? That gets a response. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from that time forth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And he was a weak man. And he succumbed to the pressure from the multitude even though he knew in his heart that Jesus was really, that he knew they had delivered Jesus for envy. But you see, the, the principle that we're finding here is Jesus spoke up because Jesus had both a moral and a spiritual obligation. It would have been a guilty silence had Jesus not borne witness to the truth. That's what he said, right? To this end was I born, and to this end came I into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And he's not going to fail in the obligation when called upon to bear witness to the truth. So there are times when silence is wise, but there are also times when silence is guilty. And that's a principle that we find many times illustrated over in the scripture. Um, but I think rather than look at a few verses from the Old Testament more in the interest of time, we'll, we'll sort of... Uh, you know, there, there, there are verses in the Old Testament that have to do with oaths and different things that you observe, you're a witness to, and not speaking is 
wrong to do, that there's stuff like that that we could get into. But I just want to leave you with one of the, perhaps I think the most prominent applications of what we're really talking about here this morning. This is not the only time, but this is certainly one of the most, I, I think it's, it, we're afflicted with this more than anything else, and it's a guilty silence concerning our witnessing. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not, but some years ago I, I became aware of the fact that the British um, evangelical writer and preacher, uh, John Stott, actually had a small paperback entitled this, Our Guilty Silence, the Church, the Gospel, and the World. And I think to myself, boy, you know, if we're thinking of the church and if we're thinking about the average Christian, the time when guilty silence is probably more true of us than any other time is in regards to our Christian witness. How many times we have failed to speak when almost certainly the Lord was giving us an opportunity to speak. You know, Paul was talking to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians in verse 34. And he says to them, awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. And then he says, I speak this to your shame. It's guilty silence. That They should have been more fervent witnesses. Those people surrounding them had had opportunity to know the truth, and they did not hear the truth from those Corinthians. Who's the American president still living who probably is most... Uh, readily in your mind associated with Christian claims. Not Jimmy Carter. Uh, so I wanted to tell you a little anecdote because I thought Carter told this story on himself and whatever you think about that's one thing or not. We're not into that this morning. I just thought that the story for someone who is, you know, makes a lot about his, his, his Christian claims and he had been invited, he told the story himself, on himself, so sometimes those are pretty good stories, but um, he had been invited to speak at a different church, another church in Georgia, and the subject was Christian witnessing. So as he was preparing his, his uh, talk on Christian witnessing, uh, he decided that what he would talk about or what he would use to share a lot about was his involvement in his uh, church's, uh, his home church's, what they called Mission Week that they had in his home church. And so he started writing down notes, doing a little figuring, and he, he, he came up with the fact that over the last 14 years, he, he had managed to visit some 140 homes. And he felt proud of that accomplishment until he said all of a sudden he began to think about the political side of things and what he had done there in comparing his witness for Christ to his witness to himself in, res in respect to Christian office, he soon realized that he had gone out in just three short months and met some 300,000 people when in 1966 he was running for governor of Georgia. Somehow, as he was thinking about this, 300,000 people in three months that he'd talked to about himself 
on behalf of his run for governor in Georgia, and 140 homes over 14 years didn't quite seem to add up. And he said, the comparison struck me, 300,000 visits for myself in three months and 140,000 visits for God in 14 years. And I think, folks, that's often the way it is. It's just somehow we just don't seem to speak up for the Lord sometimes the way we really ought to speak up for the Lord. And Jesus is an inspiring example there, especially when you realize the fact that it was going to cost him something to make that statement. You know, that's, that's what we're so often concerned about. Well, what, what will people think? Or what, what will they say? Or, you know, we're worried about what it's going to cost us. And I'm not making light of that. But that's why I asked that in our scripture reading, we read on down um, into verse 66. What think ye? They answered, he is guilty of death. Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands. And they began to mock him, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? He knew it was going to cost him to speak up for the truth. But he also knew that that was his mission in this world. For this end was I born, and to this end came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. So the last thing I wanted to say, and this will be very brief, and, but it occurs to me we've talked about wisdom in not speaking, and we've talked about an obligation to speak up. But it occurs to me that there's something else going on, and it applies equally to both of these issues and that would be the word submission. So we kind of have several words to be sure we focus on. Wisdom. It takes wisdom sometimes to understand when it's best not to speak. It takes realizing obligation sometimes to prompt us to say something when we really should. But submission we need in both because it's not always easy. Let me point a couple things out here in relationship to how does submission fit. Well, I think that Submission has a little something to do with Jesus. It's not everything to do, but it has a little something to do with Jesus' first refusal to answer those false witnesses. Because Jesus was committed to what he knew was inevitably going to happen that evening. Jesus really wasn't there to defend himself, right? He wasn't there to get out of it. He was there to close the deal. He was there to do it. That's what his, his, he was coming into the world to do, is to die on the cross. And so if we back up earlier into chapter uh, 26, I think you'll see this actually going on, um, where he speaks to Peter, verse 52. This is right before our story, but says to Peter, when Peter took the sword out in the Garden of Gethsemane and struck the fellow's ear off, then said Jesus unto him, put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But look at 54. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? See, it's the will of God that's paramount. He's not there to get out of the charge. And so I think that factors in a submission to the will of God, his commitment to not to defend himself, that God's will might be done. 
Yet, at the same point, submission is also needed to speak when it's not easy, as we've just pointed out. Jesus did speak, and the result of that was that he took physical abuse and emotional abuse and all sorts of other things. And I guess I would summarize by saying it this way, you know, James 1.19 can be just as difficult to obey as Acts 1.8. You know James 1.18? He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Gives a reason. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Sometimes best to be slow to speak, especially if it's motivated by anger. Takes a lot of grace, takes submission to God when you really want to say something. This person deserves a piece of my mind. Well, they probably do, but how will it turn out? While at the same point, Acts 1 8 says, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Which is harder, keeping your mouth shut or opening it when you should? They're both hard. Both takes submission, yieldedness to God. I can put it to you this way in closing. Speak up or shut up, that's the question. Say it or save it. I find that easy to remember. Say it or save it. So think about that. And just trusting and praying that perhaps the Lord's example here will stir our thinking and give us some inspiration in the example that he sets for us. You find lots of different things that people say in this respect. I'm going to close with two. It's all just kind of food for thought, but someone put it this way. Great minds talk about ideas. Average minds talk about events. Small minds talk about people. But I like better than anything else, and this is what I'd like to leave you with. You know, many times your mother, you remember her telling you or someone else telling you, think before you speak. Did you ever hear the think acrostic? I don't see too many people nodding their heads, so you might want to write this down. It can be helpful. It really can. All you have to do is remember the little think before you speak, and then you've got ready at hand a test if you can hold yourself together long enough to think before you speak. Let the T stand for true. Is it true? The think test is what I'm about to say true. Do I know it's true? H, is it helpful? Is it really helping the situation that I say this? Is it true? Is it helpful? The I, is it inspiring? Or is it a downer? If, you'll, if you kind of compare the opposite, you'll, you'll sort of... Some folks just have a way of sort of ruining your day, you know? They just... <laughs> they never have anything to say encouraging. And let the N stand for necessary. Is it necessary? Do I need to say this? And let the K stand for, is it kind? 
Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And if you take the think principle, I don't say I have it mastered, but it's good. It really helps. Keep it in your mind. Put it on a three-by-five card. Stick it somewhere on the refrigerator or on the dash of your car where you'll, you'll see it. Because lots of times when you're driving down the road, you have a way of talking and saying things. The other guy doesn't hear him, does he? And it's just as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness. And Lord, we just come into your presence this morning to acknowledge that 